Hey, my name's Adam Chung, and I'm the lead pastor of Cross and Crown in Melbourne. And you're listening to a Reach Australia podcast on cross-cultural ministry in Australia. If we want to reach Australia with the gospel, we need to be able to reach individual tribes and cultures, nations and tongues with the gospel as well. And that's why we're having this series of conversations to think about how we can do that best. Today we're joined by Dan Wu, who's a lecturer in Old Testament at Moore College uh, and also wrote his PhD on honour, shame and guilt in the book of Ezekiel. And also Iggy Wong, the lead pastor of CPE Church up in Brisbane. It's good to have you both. Thanks for having us. Um, Dan, do you want to kick us off? Um, Before we start thinking about honour and shame, which is the big topic of today, do you want to tell us about the church environment that you grew up in and how that's shaped your view and thinking about culture and ministry? Yeah, sure. So um, I grew up uh, going to one of the main Chinese churches here in Sydney. And so it was the Chinese Christian Church in Milsons Point. And so uh, I grew up initially in a, a congregation was actually bilingual, English and Cantonese, which my parents went to. But then as I grew older, um, I then went myself to the English congregation in the afternoon. And then eventually I went out with a church plant to North Epping and served in the English congregation in the church plant in North Epping. Uh, so that was my main church experience growing up. And um, what was the second part of the question, Adam? I guess as you reflect on the, um, you, you started off in CCC Milson's Point, a Chinese yeah. church, yeah. and I guess your ministry context is a little bit different now. Mm. How did you reflect on ministry and culture or growing up in that church context? How did it help you think about ministry? Yeah, well, I mean, Growing up in CCC was incredibly formative and uh, I'm very, very thankful for the the long tradition of faithful ministry at that church. Um, I had a great experience of it growing up. Uh, People were always very, very warm and welcoming and, um, you know, church lunches and and things like those hospitality um, uh, fixtures were just a main, main pillar of how church ran. And so that again just gave you a really good experience of just being involved, being part of things. And then I had a really good group of leaders growing up as well in the English youth ministry. And so they uh, taught me the gospel really clearly, but also modeled it in practice and life in how they tried to shape the youth group. And so that was incredibly formative. And so in in many ways, um, there's a a real continuity of ministry experience. That's the kind of values that I carried into uh, my own ministry. And that was both uh, within the Chinese church and then moving into uh, the Anglican denomination and so that's where I serve now but I think the main things have been the same but obviously uh, the cultural particulars of how they're expressed and some of the emphases have been quite different and so you sort of morph over time and sort of adapt yourself to a a different group of people trying to carry across the the main um, those main impulses. Sure you talk about the cultural idiosyncrasies or peculiarities different of Mm. different groups and and it's often claimed that Asian cultures are honor shame cultures and Western cultures are guilt, innocence cultures, and they might even say others still are fear, uh, power cultures. Mm. Mm. Before we get to whether that's a fair distinction or not, what are we talking about when we talk about honour and shame? Yeah, uh, well, look, we can go as short or as long as you like on this one, Adam. So, yeah, this is, this is the hobby horse is what I did my PhD on. But uh, I think the briefest form I can put it is that when we talk about honour and shame and uh, versus guilt, most of the time we're talking about um, cultural flavors or motivations or dynamics um, and so I think that's really important to clarify actually because you can talk about shame and guilt uh, as an emotion within a person within an individual but when 
most people talk about honor, shame cultures, guilt cultures, they're talking about social dynamics. And so um, the main difference that a lot of cultural analysts see between cultures across the world is between whether you're a, a guilt-based culture or a shame-based culture. And essentially the, the easiest way to put the difference is a guilt culture is characterized by people who are sort of motivated and understand themselves as individuals. So they're, they're motivated mainly by an internalized moral conscience, um, otherwise known as guilt. So they think of themselves as independent of others um, and their main motivation is what does my uh, internal moral system, my, my conscience tell me is right or wrong to do. When you get to an honor-shame culture, uh, the alternative there is that you have other nations that seem to be much more motivated by social pressures, so the pressures outside. And so whereas Westerners, Westerners are individually kind of made up, um, non-Westerners or Easterners, uh, we're collectively made up. And so once you start there, as you see people as not an individual but a group, uh, the main motivators are not an internalized guilt moral conscience, but external sanctions. That is, what does society tell me um, that I should be or want, etc. Um, so they're the main kind of differentiators that people say. Um, often other people kind of add in a, a sort of a, a do orientation in a Western culture versus a be orientation in a non-Western culture. Um, but I think that's actually folding back into psychology. So is, is that similar to um, an honor-shame culture saying, I have done something wrong, versus a guilt culture saying, I've done something wrong, in, in, as a matter of emphasis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's often how it's uh, characterized. Mm. And, and that, that, again, um, uh, I guess, exposes the, the difference in the, um, the way the analysts have thought people operate. Um, and say so, yes, is it I've done I've done something wrong, or I have done something wrong, and that reflects on me as a person in my social network. So again, that's another way that people sometimes distinguish guilt and shame, mm. act versus being. Mm. Dan, can I um, dig into what you've just said? Mm. And I think that was a really helpful definition. Um, the thing about culture is often you don't realise you're in the culture because it's just the air you breathe. Can you um, dig into like you mentioned broadly Eastern and Western, but can you give I guess examples of you know, maybe uh, countries or eth ethnic backgrounds that tend towards those orientations and what that might look like even in practice a little bit, maybe an example, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, sure. I mean, the, the big dividing line is obviously the global west versus the global east. Um, so you have your um, largely European Caucasian-based countries, so, um, you know, Australia, US, uh, Canada, the European countries, um, Britain most significantly, I guess. Um, and so uh, there again, you know, you do have a, a strong sense of doing what is right and a strong sense of independence. That is, um, as Aussies, we tend to think of ourselves as um, independent, self-motivated. Uh, you know, we don't really strongly consider often uh, what society expects of us. We just go our own way. And so um, uh, that's kind of how you see it played out and then you have uh, non-Western cultures, particularly Asian, uh, sometimes African, um, that sort of part of the world, uh, or those, those sorts of parts of the world, where again, you're, you're much more thinking in terms of um, what has my family done? What do my family expect of me? Um, and also, 
uh, everything that I do will reflect on the rest of my grouping and have an impact on them. So it's the way that it's characterized is that that's the contrast there and that's how you see it played out. And so, um, you know, you will have a far stronger sense of continuity of line. You know, you do what is expected of you, including things like taking on uh, the industry of your, your father or your family versus you find your own way, you do what is right for you, um, you know, you find your own career, etc. In in Western thinking. There's a lot about that, I think, when we listen to it and hear it, that can that we resonate with. Mm. I think you do any form of Asian Australian ministry, you can think about the approval of parents and that honour-shame dynamic there. Mm. Mm. At the same time, it's a pretty neat cut, and often culture isn't as neat as we would like to cut it. And actually, when I think about, I'm not that much of a sportsman, but when I think about how Aussies talk about sport, actually, I see a lot of honour-shame in that context. Absolutely, so, Dan, yeah. do you think it's, is, it, is it too simplistic to say these cultures are guilt innocence, these cultures are honour-shame, and they work in totally different siloed cultures, cultural worldviews? Yeah, thanks, Adam. Look, when I started my postgrad study, I, was, I thought this was so helpful. So, uh, initially, when I began, I thought uh, one of the reasons why this has become popular in uh, theology and biblical studies is because it was pointed out that um, most mainstream biblical study and theology has been done from a Western viewpoint. And uh, so that's why you have things like um, evangelicalism, where it's the individual before God and their conscience before God. And, you know, things like God doesn't have any grandchildren, only children. And uh, also, you're not saved by going to church, that is, being part of a group, you're saved because of your individual relationship with God. Now, I want to affirm all those things. But uh, there's a stream of study that says, hang on a second, these are all very Western, individualistic-sounding things. But when you stop and think about it, the Bible was not written in a modern Western context. It was written in an ancient context. And what is the ancient world made up of? Well before you know the enlightenment and the reformation that sort of thing there was no individualism and so the bible apparently was written in a collectivist society an honor shame society but we haven't been studying it from that viewpoint and so there's a stream of theology and biblical studies that says we actually need to shift our whole cultural perception about what we think the bible is saying if we're going to understand it on its own terms it's not a guilt culture document it's a shame culture document and so we need to read it in that light. And so as I approached uh, postgrad study, initially I thought, this is so helpful uh, because as you read the Bible, there are just so many um, social type dynamics in the Bible that as a younger person, I think I just glossed over and just tried to find where's, where's me before God? Where's me before God? That's what I latch on to. And you miss all these kind of dynamics that are more socially oriented. Um, so once I, th I thought it'd be good to study the Bible from that point of view, um, you then run into the literature and it sounds really persuasive and it seems so accurate and there's great strength to it. And to this day, I think I've benefited greatly from uh, that sort of cultural separation. Um, but as you go on and as you read, I, I just got this curious sensation of going, yeah, but, yeah, but, and, and maybe it was in part uh, because of the unique perspective of being an ABC, right? So bridging 
a, a Western and a non-Western culture bridging apparently individualism. D Dan, what's an ABC? Oh. <laughs> um, so an ABC uh, is a, um, uh, I don't know what it is, an acronym, I guess, um, which uh, has a particular uh, resonance for us as Asians. So it stands for Australian-born Chinese. That is, you are uh, physically, culturally, you know, your heritage is Chinese, but you were either born in Australia or, you know, you moved out here before uh, you were significantly culturally shaped outside of Australia so that you sort of are, are Western in upbringing, but you're Chinese in appearance and cultural background. And it's sort of this kind of middle ground. So our mere existence pushes against the siloed cultural <laughs> worldview. Well, uh, see, I, I had this curious experience of, of watching one of the main scholars in the field and they were giving a lecture trying to illustrate the, the, the vast differences. And they began with uh, an illustration, I guess, of um, uh, a child being busted by their parents. And they said, you know, now we're Westerners. And so when we got in trouble from our parents, uh, we did so because uh, we'd done something wrong. But he said, but you've got to get your head out of that thinking. Because if you're a non-Westerner, then when you get in trouble from your parents, uh, it's not because you've done something wrong. They, they don't kind of bust you for that. They shame you. And uh, at that point, I was listening um, as an ABC, and I thought, hang on, wait a second. What's going on here? Uh, because uh, when I got busted as a kid, which I did quite often, um, what happened to me? We're in Australia, so was I being busted for doing the wrong thing? But I'm culturally Chinese, or, so was I shamed? Because you can't have both, because you're either a shame culture or a guilt culture. But I couldn't actually distinguish. I just got in trouble. <laughs> it's just the way it is. And so that started me thinking, well, maybe the lines aren't so clear cut between shame, honor, and guilt. Maybe there's more of an overlap here that we actually need to think through. And yet, you can't sort of fold the two just into each other. There's still a distinction. Um, and so I started to try and think, okay, rather than creating these kind of diametrically opposed ways of thinking about people and cultures, um, maybe we need to actually figure out a way to, to hold them together in a way that's consistent. Plus, it can be a bit of a caricature, can't it? Not just in that uh, Western cultures aren't on a shame and only care about rightness mm. or wrongness, mm. but it can also it can also subtly suggest that Asian or Eastern cultures don't care about rightness or wrongness. Absolutely, which, yeah, which, that's right. As someone stuck in between two cultures, I suspect that we do care about that to some, yeah, to some yeah. extent. If that's not, if that's how we shouldn't think about it, how then do honour, shame, and guilt speak to each other? Yep. Um, well, I think the first thing to say is um, most Westerners. I'll, I'll continue to use that terminology because it's convenient, uh, even though it's not. I don't think it's entirely accurate. But most Westerners just aren't used to thinking about honour, shame dynamics. So the first thing to say is it's incredibly important. I'm not, I'm not wanting to actually minimise uh, the contribution of honour-shame studies. I actually want to say it's incredibly important. Uh, in fact, uh, I think it's central to our understanding not only of the Bible, but also of just us as people. So that's the first thing to say, as I'm not suggesting that we, we sort of just say it's nothing. Um, but what is it? So... The scholars have really helpfully tried to identify what honour is. So one of the key scholars in the area, uh, Bruce Maliner, says that the definition of honour is the assertion of social worth 
and the recognition of that assertion or that social worth. So basically, honour is social worth, um, which you sort of, in a sense, you, you try to claim and then it's actually uh, recognised. So if you think about that's what honour is, it's social worth, then shame in the, the framework is kind of lack of social worth or loss of social worth. Um, and so in an honour-shame society, um, honour is the thing that everybody lives and works for. That is, there is an amount of honour that's bound up in things like possessions and wealth and symbols and ceremonies. Um, and your goal is really to understand where you sit in the pile and to try and, in a sense, work your way up and avoid working your way down. And so in, it, in any honour-shame culture, there are things you can do or um, be or things that can happen to you that can either elevate you in the pile and gain you honour or um, reduce where you sit in the pile, lose you honour, shame you. And so an honour-shame culture is this kind of rolling interchange of honour and shame and, and moving up and down in the pile. And so, uh, so scholars talk about it as a, an agonistic or competitive culture uh, where you, you, you're constantly going, okay, where am I? Can I do things that are going to help me move up? Can I avoid things that are going to help me move, uh, that are going to make me move down? Um, and that becomes then a sort of a motivation for everything you do. That is, will this thing gain me honour um, in an appropriate way? Well, that's what I'm going to try and do. Will this thing shame me? I'm going to try and avoid that. And that comes from guessing whether you're in a traditionally Western or traditionally Eastern culture that in each cultural dynamic there, are, may, there might be different things which give honour or not. Yeah. Is that right? Or is it um, oh. just, is it only an Eastern culture dynamic? Well, see, that, yeah, and that's the thing. So, so if you subscribe to the system, the problem with the system is that it creates a, a divide between honour, shame and guilt. So you, you, if you're a guilt person, you're not an honour, shame person. But the problem is, and, and you know, this is the thing, you know, when you point the finger at someone else, there's always three pointing back at you. That, that is, whatever you think of the other culture that is not you, it's pretty much you anyway. And so, um, yeah, Adam, you were mentioning before that in terms of Aussies, uh, sport, right? We, we all kind of tie our worth in, in Aussie culture in some way to sport, whether, you know, it's the sport we watch or the sport we partake in or whatever. Um, that is a huge thing. And, and you can, as soon as you put it that way, you can very clearly see the dynamics. There is a very clear kind of where do I sit in the, in the pile in terms of sport? Like, where do my abilities land me? Which team am I part of? Which team do I associate with? Where does that land me in the pile? Um, if my team wins, I move up. If my team loses, I move down. Not only in terms of the competition ladder, but also in terms of, you know, public esteem, that sort of thing. Uh, so where, whatever code you follow, you know, whether it's uh, AFL or league or union, um, as soon as you start thinking about that, you realise that it's actually really natural to think in these terms. So when we think about, and I know nothing about cricket, I don't even know what an over is, right? But when you think about the cricketing scandal that happened uh, in Australia a few years ago, mm. was that a good example of thinking about honour and shame and public repentance and what it looks like for someone yes. to go through that experience? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, that's it's just fascinating how, how you have that interface of honour dynamics with guilt, you know, punishment, dynamics going on. So, for example, Steve Smith. Um, 
at the time, uh, what happens is, uh, you know, the, the Aussie team gets caught ball tampering and Steve Smith as the captain falls on his sword and uh, in a sense rightly so. I mean he, he was responsible for the team, they were caught absolutely cheating um, and so there was action taken uh, to remove him. But on the other hand you also have the, the shame and disgrace that sticks to him so that um, uh, when, even when he comes back into the team he doesn't come back in as captain. Uh, because what he has done has sort of uh, so lowered his social worth that you can't put him back up the top, at least not straight away. Um, but there's also another curious kind of thing going on in that um, it's, the sort of, uh, it's the sort of action that you would think you're out. You know, there's a lifetime ban. There's no redemption from there's that. There's no redemption from that. And yet he's back. Right? And so there's this curious, hang on, we've got this kind of we know what is right and wrong. He clearly did what is wrong, but he's so good. And if he was part of the team, you know, the Aussie team would find its way back up to, to the top of the pole. So let's try and create some things to, to sort of appear like we're ticking all the boxes, but get him back in there because we want to be kept back up the top. So it's really, really fascinating how much just that desire for honour has made us actually you know, change rules and allow this and allow that so that we can have someone who did something so decidedly wrong and against the spirit of the sport right back in there. And that's a bit of an example of that collectivist versus individual difference there. For the sake of the team, for the sake of Australian pride, actually, yep. um, we will do this, mm. even though as an individual there's guilt and shame. Um, there's, there's that guilt of uh, the wrongness of what he's actually done, but that honour collectively is actually yeah. more important in a, to an extent, yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah when you start to think about it like that, you just realise there's, there's an honour system everywhere and also a guilt system everywhere, but they just work on different lines and sort of work in different ways. So when we look at Asian cultures, and we would normally, we, so we recognise some difference, and I think the labels we attach to them will be the honour, shame versus guilt innocence, mm. Mm. but it might not be, that might not be the right category to use, what are the lines then that Asian churches or Asian Australian cultures would then use to determine social worth and honour? Um, well, look, I think um, uh, perhaps some of the other episodes in the podcast are going to spell this out in uh, more detail, but um, uh, the, the typical ones would be uh, in terms of an Asian, Asian church, a generic Asian church, obviously every church is going to be um, different. But Asian culture in general obviously um, values, th there are certain professions and, and sort of um, you know, realms of work and being that uh, do bring particular esteem. Um, so you know, doctor, dentist, lawyer, those sorts of things. So, so wherever you have people in those professions and those other professions that are associated with um, high social value, um, that's gonna be uh, one factor in, in a particularly in a Chinese uh, church setting. Um, and then uh, the, the family bonds, obviously, very, very important. And so um, your, your name and uh, the names of those around you, the, the relatives that you have in the church. So very, very strong familial cohesion. Um, that's another dynamic. Uh, and then, you know, Chinese churches, again, the, the cultural heritage of uh, what Chinese people value um, that shouldn't be minimised either. 
That is, you've got a, a curious mix of those Eastern philosophies and religions that are just part of your cultural heritage and memory, and they do tend to impose themselves on the way that church is done, um, sometimes in a really positive way, and sometimes uh, in terms of gospel ministry, in a really challenging way. And so things like the notion of face, uh, the notion of um, always needing to appear on top of things, in control of things, never perturbed, never, you know, too kind of worked up, uh, that's a real factor in, in Chinese churches. Um, and so how do you actually uh, say to someone um, that you ought to be able to, to pour yourself out heart and soul before God, uh, that we, we ought to show our vulnerabilities when the whole culture says, do not do that. That is actually uh, lowering your social value. You shouldn't do that because that will actually threaten social cohesion. When you mention a number of those dynamics, I can't help but think of different things in churches that happen. So, for example, um, going into ministry, for example, that, that's as low as it goes, let's face it, right? <laughs> and, uh, and it's funny because I often find one of the questions that's asked in an Asian church of a minister is, well, what did he do before he went into ministry? Mm. Because that, that kind of measures and benchmarks how I should think of you and what you gave up. Or when you think about repentance uh, or church discipline, mm. how do you think about that in light of uh, honor and shame and how that's yeah. viewed by others? Can I ask, when it comes to evangelism, mm. um, how does this play through? Mm. And I guess, I guess really, actually the fundamental question is, how does the gospel speak into this culture? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, great question, Adam. Um, so one of the really fascinating and, it, and I think the most valuable area for, for us as evangelicals in the whole honor-shame field of study is the development of um, this concept called the, the public court of reputation, or uh, PCR for short. And um, uh, as scholars kind of kept on working in the area, they realized that actually as you study different cultures, um, you can't just say there is this thing called honor. You have to actually go, well, what does this culture honor? And uh, what they came to is that in every cultural group, in every sort of nation and cult uh, subculture, uh, there is this sort of thing where you you know what honor is and there is a group of people who are actually responsible for um, uh, determining and dispensing who is honored in that society and uh, so they call that whole system a public court of reputation that is you, you step into that kind of area and you in a sense put your reputation on the line and and what you want is for those in authority the public court of reputation to actually acknowledge that yes, you are a, you know, a, a group of value or a person of value. Um, but you have to kind of subscribe to that, that court's ways of doing things and what they value, et cetera. And if you can do that successfully, then you're actually upheld by that court. So that was kind of stage one, where people suddenly started to go, oh, we can't just talk about this nebulous thing called honor. We actually have to talk about specifics. And then stage two was they realized, oh, hang on. In, in any kind of, say, geographical group of people, there's not just one court of reputation. There's stacks of them. Um, there's, so, so one article I read was uh, talking about ancient Roman society, and says, so there's the Epicureans with their view of what is honorable. There's the Stoics with their view. There's, 
Uh, and then there's the Christians with their view. And there's this kind of constant com competition and interaction of these public courts of reputation, uh, all vying for that sort of the, the top dog position. And uh, I thought that was really fascinating and really helpful to understand what happens um, when you kind of just cram a whole group of people together, say in a city, uh, that you do. You have all these subgroups and each of them has their own little dynamic of honour that's going on and they kind of rub up against each other in different ways. Sometimes they resonate and sometimes they absolutely don't and they kind of, um, you know, there's conflict and, and competition. Uh, but I think that's so helpful to understand uh, not only culture but also churches and ministry. Um, that is often what you're dealing with is not simply, if I just present the truth simply and plainly, it'll just work. Which I think sometimes is our impulse. We just, we go, okay, I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to preach these things and everything will just work. And then we get in there and find actually it's really hard. It's not working. What's, what's going on? So what I've found um, for me helpful in understanding, but also operating and, and trying to move for transformation and change is to actually start thinking um, in these terms. Okay, I have my particular values and, and things I esteem. You have yours because you're part of this group. They're going to come together. And when they do, there are going to be these points that are either going to resonate or rub up against each other. And actually, it's those points that actually can create um, what we need to think about then, what are we going to build from this point on? And so I've actually started to think of ministry more and more like that, that I, I, I need to understand my own value system, my own honor system, what I, uh, which I think in the end actually generates what you think is right and wrong. I need to understand yours and I need to understand where and when this is going to rub up and then how to respond in a God-shaped way. In multicultural churches, you've got lots of those different groups, mm. those courts of recognition as such. Yep. When they come together and they resonate or they conflict, where exactly are we trying to lead people to? Mm. So I can imagine that can just be a kind of detente or a cold war in terms of, uh, <laughs> look, you do you, I'll do me, and here's where we resonate, here's where we'll just stay away from each other. But as we think about maturing people yep. more and more into the image of Christ, mm. Where are we leading people to in terms of what's the reference point for honour? Yeah, yeah. well, uh, this is where I think the Bible really shines. And this is why I think we need to actually have uh, an understanding of honour as central in terms of life and ministry. Because, um, you know, when you think about it, the Bible is all about the glory of God. And um, the Bible itself will say the whole point of creation is to glorify God, um, is to honour the God who made it. And so, um, so when you think about it like that, you've got all these competing courts going on at a human level, but you've got, um, uh, I guess, the divine court, God, God's form of honour and God's understanding of honour, uh, which for us needs to sit over all the others and, and be authoritative over them. And so one way to think about ministry is to, to think, um, here is what God values and honours, to what extent does this group operate in a way that resonates with that? Well, those parts of that culture I can affirm, I can encourage, and then what parts of this group's culture actually cut against that, and that's what I need to challenge and change. And so, um, again, you know, when it comes to Chinese culture, uh, I think uh, the familial bonds are obviously something that resonate 
quite highly with what's in the Bible. You know, honor your father and mother is one of the commandments, central commandment. Um, and so, so that actually resonates. Now, does their particular form of honoring exactly resonate with what the Bible is trying to get to? Maybe not, because uh, for some Chinese parents at least, your loyalty to God should sit under your loyalty to them. Whereas we know from the Bible, no, nah, it's the other way around. We honor our parents because our parents image God to us. That is, um, there's ways in which parents are very much like God. You know, Humanly speaking, they are the creators of a child and they also care for and provide for a child, particularly when they can't care for and provide for themselves. And so there is a, a sense in which um, human parents image God to their children. Um, but there are other ways that the Bible goes on to spell out, and, and I think actually the, the commandment itself is doing this, where our parents are actually our first neighbors, and actually the, the roles become reversed as the parents age. And so I think the commandment is really uh, saying, honor your father and your mother uh, in the same way that they have reflected God's goodness to you in growing up, when they become older and more vulnerable themselves, it is your opportunity then to model the goodness of God to them and, and be their neighbor. And so uh, that framing actually then shows you, okay, you, you therefore can't see honoring parents as above God because parents are not God. They're, there's vulnerability, they're humans, they're frail, they're flawed, they will age, they will get weak. God doesn't do that. And so, so God's honor needs to stay at the top and you need to then figure out from that, how do I humanly reflect that to the parents that I need to honor? And so th there's that really fruitful interaction there going on that I think um, this whole way of thinking of honor actually um, evokes. Yeah. Dan, if I can just ask a question in terms of those listening today, um, you know, maybe pastors or lay people who just want to do ministry better, um, and understanding honor, shame, and that framework. Uh, what's some steps they can take to start? Obviously, it's a lot to uh, take in and just um, a mindset change. Yep. Uh, but are there practical ways that we can start doing this, using this framework better, yeah, understanding yeah. it better, by implementing it in practice? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, look. Thanks, Iggy. I, I think there are. Let me start um, broad brushstroke, and then if we have time, we can drill into it. I think there are two main things that that to my mind are really helpful to keep in mind. Uh, number one is what is God's honor? What is God's glory? So, so rather than just a vague thing, we actually like any culture, we need to understand what are the particulars of honoring God? What actually glorifies him? How do we know that what we are doing and what we are encouraging people to do actually brings God the honor that he wants? And um, uh, I've found uh, Jonathan Edwards, the American theologian, particularly helpful on this. Um, he has, uh, in his track, The End or The Goal for Which God Created the World, he has a beautiful analogy of a light source and a mirror. And, uh, and he likens that to God and creation. He says, uh, God is like the sun. He is the source of all glory. Um, and he makes the world... Um, so that he can pour his glory and his goodness into it. And um, when you read the Bible and you, you try and drill down, what, is, what does God mean when he says, my glory? Uh, one of the key episodes that you see it revealed is Exodus 30, 
34, where God appears to Moses and declares his name, which is his character. Um, when Moses says, show me your glory, God passes before him and says, this is who I am. And the two core characteristics that, that God says, this is who I am, are um, he is the God of love and faithfulness. And so if you kind of build that into the picture, so, so God's glory, God's honor, is his own character of love and faithfulness. And um, uh, in biblical terms, love is a fierce commitment to do good to another, regardless of the cost to yourself. Faithfulness is an utter, stable, relational reliability that means you can be depended on. And, and both of those are necessary for uh, what stands at the heart of everything, and that is relationship. And so from that you go, okay, so, so what God is doing in creating is he's creating an object which he can actually uh, pour love and faithfulness into. It can be a recipient of um, love and faithfulness. And so uh, that is what Edward says are the beams of God's glory, um, filling the earth with his goodness. Uh, now, what happens is it doesn't end there because the, the mirror is meant to then receive that love and faithfulness um, and then be filled with it as we kind of live accordingly, um, as we fill the world with God's good gifts and then reflect it in lives of thanks and praise as we live consistently with God's love and faithfulness. And so Edward says that's, that's actually what creation is made for, to receive first God's love and faithfulness, then to reflect and return it. And so if that's the goal of creation, then that's the goal of church. So that is, church is meant to be a group of people who, whose very life is bound up in receiving first God's love and faithfulness, primarily in, in Jesus, but also in everything, and then using that love and faithfulness to, to be filled to overflowing and then respond in thanks and praise. And so... As we think about church, I think for me that's so helpful in that it's not just about have I got the words out that I'm meant to, have I taught the truth, okay, job done. No, no, no. It's about cultural formation. It's about forming a body of people who are filled with the love and faithfulness of God and then taught and um, enjoying reflecting and returning the love and faithfulness of God. And ultimately that's what honours God and gives him great glory. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and the second thing is actually just to think about culture in a, a simple but useful way. So there's a lot of talk about culture, but it often seems like really complicated. And, and you just kind of go, culture. You go, yes. Me? What? Um, so as I've been trying to think about, well, what is it at its heart? What are we talking about? And you think, well, there's Asian culture, there's Chinese culture, there's sporting culture, there's you know, you can pretty much apply it to anything. And so what are we actually talking about? I think there are three things, three core elements of what you would call a culture. Uh, basically, you need a, a group of people with something in common. Because that's, a, that's the first thing. It can be anything. It can be their ethnicity. can be their interests. can be their activity. Um, can even be, you know, as, as superficial as their hair colour. Right, uh, you know, redheads unite or something like that. <laughs> um, uh, but that forms a cultural group because there's something uniting these people together and giving them commonality. Uh, then, second part of culture is you you look for the signs and symbols 
that actually demonstrate that they are part of this grouping. So again, is it the clothes they wear? Is it their physical appearance? Is it their, their way of speaking? There's a whole stack of stuff. Um, but there will be things that actually bind them together and um, they will both be just normal physical things but also signs and ceremonies. And so uh, when you have a group of people, uh, one of the ways to actually build them together is just to do the same thing over and over again. Um, and this repeated activity or this repeated ritual, uh, which can have to do with anything like food um, or clothing or activity, anything, um, those are the signs and ceremonies that actually identify, yes, I'm part of this group. And then thirdly is, if you look behind both of those things, what is this group valuing? Um, is it just we need to protect ourselves or we need to hang together and do the same things? Um, is it we want to do something together so we need to actually um, do the signs and ceremonies that are going to help us achieve these things? Is it just that we really like each other and we want to be at the top of the pile? You know, those, so, so it's the, um, a group of people with something in common. It's the signs, ceremonies and symbols that indicate this group in common and then there's the values behind it. I find that really helpful for just coming into any new situation or even thinking about my own and thinking, okay, what are, what are my different cultural kind of groupings? And once you kind of break it down like that, you then start to be able to say, okay, I understand why you get so hung up about this one thing because it actually ties into this whole cultural grouping. Okay, I, I think I can understand that. I can speak to it now. Oh, I find that really helpful. So it's like if you sat in this particular seat. Uh, I mean, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because you talk about culture and those three marks, and then you talk about the glory of God. And I just think um, in so many Asian churches uh, that, that I'm aware of or grew up in, we, we might not use the language of glory. We might not use the language of honor. Um, but culture will assume that particular people within church uh, whether that's a family grouping or a particular uh, person or elder statesman within church, they should be the one to get the honour uh, or we should be the one to mm. get the honour. But to think about the glory of God as the unifying mm. concept mm. in that, which then shapes all the symbols and all the values, yep. it, can be, it can project something quite different to the world yep. and yet also in terms that cultures can understand. Mm. Yep. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, at the end of the day, honour really is what you esteem and what you value. And who you esteem and who you value. Yeah, that's great. Dan, it's been so helpful. We're getting to the end of our time together, but um, is there anything else that you'd like to add that you think would be helpful for our listeners to hear? Um, yeah, look, maybe just one more thing. Yeah, I'll just extend the whole um, PCR idea. Um, and for me, the, the final step in how helpful this is, is to realize that it's not just that there are lots of PCRs in society and you're part of one of them, it's actually to realize that. I'm part of lots of them. So, so we're actually the site of lots of overlapping PCRs, lots of overlapping value systems. And it's often one of the reasons why uh, we do what we do in certain settings is because we kind of operate differently in each part of them. And sometimes that can be quite confusing, particularly as like an ABC where we constantly are living both cultures. You, you sometimes can't realize, what, why did I do that? And so um, I was thinking about these scenarios where um, let's say you have a young man uh, who's very, very confident, is happy to speak to his superiors um, because he thinks he has very, very good ideas in a way that really um, at, uh, is quite bold and uh, is happy to correct them. He's jovial, laughs, etc. Uh, there's another 20-year-old 
who at a very, very similar meeting is very reticent to speak, um, only speaks what those around him will echo and uh, just feels a sense of uh, inability really to break into this circle. There's uh, another 20 year old who um, uh, feels competent in an activity and um, will be quite kind of superior with those around him, but in a very, very different setting. There's a 20 year old who, again, will not actually uh, perform to his full abilities because he feels that um, actually others might uh, feel threatened to a point where there might be some bad consequences. And although that sounds like four different people, that's actually the same person, that's me. And so I, I realize as I, as I go through life and as I go through different settings, there are some times where I feel really confident to speak to my elders um, in a way that in another setting uh, would be just so rude and disrespectful that I, that I just can't. And I feel a physical kind of, you cannot say that. Um, and so often it, you, know, you, you feel these conflicting things in you and you go, where is all this? Why can't I just kind of get out there and be the bold person that I know I can be? And often it's because I'm in a different PCR. And, and in this PCR, it just doesn't work like that. So it's really hard to go, I need to be like this over here. Um, but it can be helpful then to reflect, okay, well, maybe I do need to. Maybe this is challenging me because I know that there's fruitful stuff I can do in this area that I'm just not able to do because I can't. But if I do it in the same way, it's just not going to work. But it gets you thinking, okay, what are the ways this system works that I can actually helpfully put myself in there? But over it all has to be, does it honour God? So I, I find that really helpful. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today as we think about honour and shame. Uh, Reach Australia really cares about reaching uh, all of Australia uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, all to the glory of God. And that's what we're on about. Uh, join us next podcast as we talk more with others about how to reach cross-culturally uh, for the sake of the glory of Jesus.